Hi, I'm Gayathri Vaidyanathan. And I'm Mary Rose Abraham. And you're listening to Scrolls and Leaves. Today in our chat room episode... Borders, far more than people think, common borders that we all live with, geopolitical borders we cross all the time, did arise very strongly out of quarantine borders in times of epidemic, where people would be checked much more than they normally would be. That's acclaimed historian Alison Bashford. She's a professor of history at the University of New South Wales in Sydney and an expert at medicine at the borders. And, and so for me, for many years, it's been a much harder and more confronting question is what, what do polities, governments do when there is a really clear epidemiological difference between one country and another or one part of the world and another? What do epidemiologists do? Is it justified to shut down a border? Alison's early work was on British imperial and Australian histories. And more recently, she's been studying the history of medicine and the earth sciences. She's published five books and edited seven. And the one we're interested in here today is Medicine at the Border, Disease Globalization and Security, 1850 to the Present. This interview was recorded in April and has been edited and condensed. Just to remind you where the pandemic was back then, Australia was under lockdown and so was India. Cruise ships like the Diamond Princess were trapped at sea with no place to dock. Allison was one of the experts we spoke to for Episode 1, Pandemics and Borders. We'll listen to her as she tries to make sense of the border closings during COVID-19, a disease that has been quite unusual in many ways. Hello, yes, my name's Alison Bashford and I'm a professor of history at University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. And I, I trained as a medical historian a long time ago and became interested in um, the world of infectious diseases and how they're managed by individuals, but also especially interested in how they're managed by, by different states over time. And I uh, early wrote a book called Imperial Hygiene, which was about borders of disease control of various scales and kinds. And then I wrote, uh, no, I edited a book called Contagion, um, thinking culturally as well as historically about disease. And that led to a book called Medicine at the Border, uh, and that was inspired by SARS. And little did I know then that 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 line of interest would become so tragically topical. Thanks, Alison. I just wanted to ask you a very basic question. What is a border um, when we're talking about disease? Great question. So I, I think there's a historians recently have been like a lot of social scientists very interested in scale. So how we scale up and scale down things. And in medical history and history of disease, a border can be anything from the board, the really critical, as we know now, border of the skin, the border of the human body, and what crosses that border as a microbe, or what crosses that border as a needle that injects a vaccine, say. So that's one really obvious but thoroughly important border in this context. It can scale up to households and so the, you know, the threshold of a door where people are kept out or kept in. It can scale up to the borders around a um, 
a town. So in the early modern period, the idea of a plague town had very uh, policed borders. Um, And then uh, more in the 19th and especially the 20th century, um, borders, disease borders often became coterminous with national borders. Um, And that's when you get in disease times a kind of a link between um, keeping disease out and keeping out people. Um, So for me that that kind of scaling up from, I mean, at a very literal, not a metaphorical way, but actually a literal way from the border of the individual human body to the border of a nation state, that's something that, as I say, is often talked about as a metaphor, but in a way I'm more much interested, I'm much more interested at being uh, the, these things being literal borders between uh, clean and unclean spaces. Oh, that's interesting. I think most people would probably only think of like geopolitical borders. Are most borders generally meant to keep the unclean kind of people out? You know, if we think historically about various diseases, there's been moments where people have been asked to stay inside a border, not because it's not because it's clean, but precisely because it's 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 unclean or it's infected. So if you think about um, plague in early modern England in the 1500s or 1600s, where a town would have one person and then often with plague immediate, almost immediately, um, many people diseased, um, there would be sometimes an agreement on the part of the, that town itself, sometimes imposed by outsiders, to put a really clear boundary around um around that town so that people would neither go in nor go out. And that was about not because the inside was clean, but precisely because the inside was risky and dangerous and and diseased and polluted in some way. So, you know, it's just like this is the fascinating thing, um, tragically, about borders and disease because they can either mean if you wear a mask now, it it can either mean you're wearing a mask to prevent the disease that you have inside you from spreading to others, but a mask equally might mean and actually serve as a border that keeps you on the inside of the mask um, clean from out, outside pollutants. So borders are, are can flip from one to the other really quickly. That is to say, if we think about um you know, the, the the cruise ship phenomenon at the moment with coronavirus, if there's nobody on that, if a ship's floating around the Indian Ocean or the Pacific Ocean or the Caribbean and it's not docking anywhere and there's nobody sick on that ship, then it is the most secure place, it's the safest place that's not coming into contact. Its borders are really uh, protective. But as soon as there's one um, symptomatic person or one diagnosed person, um, then it be, then it just flips immediately from the safest place to the riskiest place, and the border is then maintained for a different um, reason. So, at all those scales that I've mentioned, the border, the kind of disease border, can can, can flip from protection of the inside, so to say, 
to protection for the outsiders um, in an instant. That's interesting. Um, so if we move to a larger scale, I think geopolitical borders are very much a part of our life today. Where exactly did they come from, this idea of national borders and geopolitical borders? It, it arose, a border control arose out of a combination of uh, uh, infectious disease on the one hand and uh, uh what my colleague Marilyn Lake and Henry Reynolds called the Global Colour Line, so race-based immigration acts. And borders, far more than people think, um, common borders that we all live with, geopolitical borders we cross all the time, uh, did arise very strongly out of um, quarantine borders in times of epidemic where people would be checked much more than they normally would be and in combination with race-based immigration restriction acts starting with um, in the 1850s with um, uh, a suite of restrictions on Chinese movement uh, into the Americas and actually into South America and Australia and New Zealand. Um, and these things often became quite strongly um, uh, and pro- obviously problematically c- c- uh, Collated, so because um, China was often seen to be a source of particular um, epidemics, plague, let's say, uh, in the late eighteen nineties, um, there were extra um, extra uh, cautions and practices and and laws actually put in place to um, restrict. Uh, or test or quarantine people coming from China often into places like New Zealand or North America uh, or Australia. And uh, though the justification for those was often because of a correlation between um, epidemic disease and 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 China. And there's there's a there's a a, a longer history there actually with migration of. Uh, people from India and elsewhere in South Asia, uh, especially across the Indian Ocean and across the Pacific Ocean as well, that um, that I think of often in the current context. And so there was my colleague in uh, University of British Columbia, uh, Renissa Mawani, has just written a fantastic book on this. So there was a, sh- a ship called the Komagata Maru that um, sailed like so many ships, a steamer that sailed between ports in India uh, to Hong Kong, across the Pacific Ocean to west coast of um, the States and Canada. And it um, there was a particular uh, moment and an episode where it was trying to get entry into it was there was a lot of um, uh, South Indian people seeking labouring jobs in Canada. And this is the early 20th century. And uh, the ship arrives in, I think it was Vancouver from memory, and it was not allowed to dock. It was not allowed to pull into port. Um, And we should all right now be thinking of those many cruise liners that have been, you know, not granted permission to dock in the last couple of months. And the Komagata Maru, the name of the vessel, um, had, uh, I can't quite remember, perhaps hundreds of um, mainly South Indians, I think, looking for labouring jobs in Canada. And they were stranded for months and months and months on this ship. And it was a combination of um, of Canadian uh, in uh, race uh, immigration restrictions 
and cautions about the introduction of particular diseases into into Canada that was used as a justification for this vessel just being stranded. And it was sent back across the Indian Ocean and Hong Kong wouldn't let it dock and it had to go back to India. So these poor folk were stuck on this ship for... um, for many, many months. And I think, and that was a combination of race-based immigration restriction laws that always had disease clauses within them. And the disease clause would often get rolled out as the justification, you know, that it was about the, it was about public safety. And I've often thought about that incident as we've all watched the tragic stories of the, not, they're not stories, they're real, of the, the cruise ships, um, sailing around the world looking for places, you know, with a symptomatic person or with diseased uh, confirmed uh, cases of coronavirus um, ha- that are kind of liminally floating, not nowhere wants them to pull into their port. And when they do, are people allowed off? Will it, does the ship itself turn into a quarantine station? What laws govern the, the, the people on those ships? Is it the law of the sea? Is it domestic law? Can ports legitimately ask the ship, the cruise ship, to sail on? So as we've and and the, and the poor people stuck on these ships, they, as I said much earlier, these ships go from one minute the safest place, the next minute the highest risk, extremely dangerous places, and I think there are um, very similar, you know, similar stories from different times that have brought, in a way, um, an old maritime world back to the political and epidemiological, for that matter, um, fore. And so I've been, as a historian, watching the the cruise ship um, phenomenon very carefully and with great interest. So it seems to me that during COVID-19, race isn't really that closely tied to disease. Because if you take people from cruise ships like the Diamond Princess, a lot of them are quite well-to-do and from Western nations, right? Exactly. And I and I think that, you know, so many of my colleagues and friends who have been writing about disease and borders and immigration restriction and, and the, the racialising of all of that, which has been part of the Global South story um, for, a, for a very long time, uh, there's no question about that. That's just a matter of fact, not interpretation. Um, in a way, we've been kind of caught wrong-footed, if I can put it that way, in and around coronavirus because our critique of, which has kind of become so well-known that we needn't keep saying it, uh, you know, that, that there is this strong history of race, disease, borders, immigration, just doesn't help us think through coronavirus because it's not, I mean, quite interestingly, Global South and Global North stories have been flipped and old critiques don't help us think through in the current circumstance what's going on. It's not something that divides at the moment um, Clearly, in a global south, global north axis, coronavirus is clearly something which, inside different nations and different polities, unsurprisingly and equally tragically, does operate on a rich poor um, 
access to healthcare and not access. But the, none of this is working on an old kind of racial politics of global south, global north anymore or immigration restriction anymore, except for the early moments when except for the early moments when Trump was very easily able to bring in, you know, the barring of uh, of, of people moving from China into the US. That had a really immediate resonance. And so many of my colleagues and I just thought, oh, this is, this is a, a replay of a really old trope. Um, but actually since then, that critique that so many of us have been familiar with for so long, in fact, has been insufficient for uh, understanding any clear pattern between, you know, a, a, a global south and global north or old stories of um, problematic race-based immigration restriction and disease control. Yeah, and that's that just contradicts older patterns of thinking about race as the basis of disease and also this idea of filth, which is often connected with race and history, that just, uh, all this just negates that. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I, th- I think our, um, when I say our, I'm thinking about my generation of historians and social sciences who are kind of trained into a, our normal responses to think about race and the modern world, you know. And of course, we need to in a thousand ways. And it's not, invalid in the sense of uh, the history because, again, just as a matter of fact, not a matter of interpretation, there was so much um, um, there was so much uh, expedient use of racism in the past to justify all kinds of other things. So that so that's kind of clear. But whether we in in kind of continually having recourse to that critique, I don't think has is helping us at all. I think you're right in the current in the current moment. Although I should say, and this there just might be too many dots here to kind of link up. One you know, all the years that I've been thinking about borders and race and disease and politics and um race-based migration acts and so forth, in a way the critique is both true and uh you know, after a while becomes um so apparent and obvious that it's you don't need to keep you know, you're just saying old news again and that, you know, for, that becomes dull after a while, even if it is true, if I can put it that way. And and so for me, for many years, it's been a much harder and more confronting question is and has long been, what, what do polities, governments do when there is a really clear epidemiological difference between one country and another or one part of the world and another? What do epidemiologists do? Is it justified to shut down a border or um, uh, or, or restrict entry or ask people to have extra tests if they do come from a high-risk high country epidemiologically concerned? And in some ways that's, you know, it's kind of um, important and but also relatively easy to point to the Politic, the global South North politics of that, in a way, it's a much harder to question, question to think. Well, what what do we do, do? We not do that just because it's connected to a difficult racial um, uh, or global politics. And I think that in a way, what's happening now with coronavirus is that 
the differences between, as you say, the differences between successful and less successful outcomes in at the current moment just don't map onto what we would ex- what we might have expected. Um, that 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 in some ways the whole. I don't know. We're still assessing this. Even as I say this, I'm not even sure myself. Have has is what's happening in coronavirus actually about to shift everything in terms of political economies, in terms of our critique, in terms of thinking global south and north? Is everything actually about to shift on an ax on a different axis again? Because it's not following um, it's not following previous patterns, and I don't have an answer to that but I do think that the question that you put is something that many of us are this is you know the the one republic on the planet is not doing very well at all and the land of the free is turning out to be not that and that is the epitome of the land of the north and the states you know what's happening in the United States is is a different axis of um, political economy of disease you know it's an internal one and that in a way that's where the conversation m- may direct when it comes to thinking about global disease and borders um, and it may all be heralding a shift away from you know the kind of historical world that I know really well which is a kind of a you know the 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 borders between um, global, as you say, global north, global north, and global south, and I do think that um, one of the things that has really interested me is whether globalization is not actually what's most important at the moment. I think that what's going on within countries. And even the kind of borders that are being set up, set up within countries really is the pressing feature of coronavirus. You know, even though we we know that people are being, you know, none of us can move between one country and another anymore. But what's novel perhaps now is the restriction of movement within countries, between states. And certainly here in Australia, it's <clears throat> highly unusual it happened in Spanish flu, but it hasn't happened ever since. That we are no long, we are currently not able to travel between one state and another. I'm not sure about India. You can you can tell me. Yeah, it's the same in India. State borders are shut down. But what I find even more interesting is that um, even district borders are closed, and even neighborhoods, so we can't access um, certain neighborhoods. So it's not really about the global anymore. I think it's. COVID is very much about uh, very localized experiences, our cities, our neighborhoods, and even our ho- uh, even our homes. You know, globalization doesn't, it's, it's kind of old news now. It doesn't really help us understand what's going on right now, which is so much more about state healthcare structures, limiting movement within polities, a whole kind of novel sets of arrangements um, there. So, you know, Many of us in the SARS moment were really obsessed with this new thing called globalization, but the coronavirus moment, I think, is actually about what's going on inside um, domestic borders. You were listening to Alison Bashford on Medicine and Borders on Chatroom.
visit scrollsandleaves.com for the transcript. And we're just getting started, so we'd greatly appreciate your help if you could please subscribe to our podcast, rate it, or even leave a review. Stay tuned for more chat room episodes. And also coming up is episode two, Healing Plants. <laughs>